William Collins presents Bloody Brilliant Women with me, Cathy Newman. This is a history of our times. This is a history of the pioneering women who defied the odds to transform modern Britain. This is a history of women who achieved remarkable things but have faded into oblivion. Throughout this series, you'll be hearing some selected extracts from my audiobook, Bloody Brilliant Women, The Pioneers, Revolutionaries and Geniuses Your History Teacher Forgot to Mention, which tells the stories of incredible women from the 1880s to the modern day. In this episode, we'll meet Marjorie Hurst, the founder of the Brook Street Bureau Secretarial Agency. Through her story, we'll explore the reinforcement of women's work as an established idea during the 1960s and meet the women who were fighting back. Part 1 In March 1965, the American magazine Time ran an interview with one of Britain's richest and most self-esteeming women. In case that last bit sounded rude, the writer pointed out that Mrs Marjorie Hurst, 51-year-old founder of the Brook Street Bureau Secretarial Agency, was self-esteeming by her own admission. I never thought for a moment that I could fail, she declared, and to be fair, her confidence seemed justified. Earlier that month, Brook Street had been floated on the London Stock Exchange, a first for a secretarial bureau. Within 15 months, its initial share price doubled. Branches in America and Australia followed. The surprise, given how good Hurst evidently was at running a company, was how long it had taken her to find her vocation. After school, where Hurst was repeatedly told she was good for nothing, she had drifted into acting, experience she would later put to canny use as a charismatic self-publicist. During the Second World War, she served in the ATS, the women's branch of the British Army. She married a soldier, but three weeks after their baby was born, her husband walked out of the family home. At the age of 31, broken and humiliated, Hurst accepted her father's offer to cover the rent on their flat. But she was too ashamed to tell him about the overdue rates, so she ended up in court for non-payment. In her memoir, Hurst describes the moment of epiphany when she realised optimism and resilience were the keys to her recovery. She recognised, as she put it, that there is no such thing as the end of your life, only the end of an episode. Mentally fortified, she rented a room in Brook Street in Mayfair and set herself up as a professional typist. Her first client was a foreign princess, Hurst fails to specify, who lived full-time at the Ritz Hotel. The princess's 15-year-old grandson had written a play and she wanted it typed up for posterity. The only problem, the princess claimed unconvincingly, was that she didn't have much money. Would Hurst consider working for a reduced fee? The standard rate for the job would have been 15 guineas. Aghast at the princess's cheek, Hurst phoned her back and told her the job would normally cost 25 guineas, but that she would do it for 23. To her amazement, the princess agreed to the price. For the first few months, Hurst ran Brook Street single-handed as one of those many-armed Balinese ladies. I was a telephonist, office girl, receptionist and emergency temporary. She turned up at clients' offices with her baby daughter in a pram. She needed lots more girls on her books, dreamed of having hundreds and fibbed to people that she did. Within six months, she had 25, pretty good going, 
and contracts to supply clerical staff to several major companies, including Shell. Much of her success Hearst attributed to thoroughness, a quality she felt men lacked, especially in the middle echelon of a company where women do so well. At the top level, she conceded, women were less successful. Too often they lack breadth of vision and the boldness for directorships, but this is only lack of experience and training for the top jobs. I believe the time may come when they surprise the world. Many ambitious women she knew only too well saw secretarial work as a route into a company. Being a good secretary was a way of proving to your male boss that you had what it took to climb higher. Before approving the flotation, the city had demanded that Hearst appoint a male chairman because to have a woman was unorthodox. It was suggested that Hearst's husband, Eric, be chairman and joint managing director with her. No, said Hearst. I felt I owed it to women at large to show that it could be done. The city backed down, but men continued to belittle her. Some of the businessmen I met treated me in a half-quizzical, half-patronising way. Well, well, they would grin. So the little lady's a tycoon. And how do you shape up with a pan of bacon and eggs? Like so many women of the period, though, Hurst was a mass of contradictions. She disliked the sexist things men did and said, but also disliked the way successful women who needed to make headway in male-dominated industries lost what she thought of as their soft, feminine qualities. Nothing is sadder to me than the women who take on a man's job and become so masculine in their attitudes that they turn their back on their own sex. In this subtle, stealthy anti-feminism, she resembled Mrs Thatcher, who, as Prime Minister, placed wealth-creating entrepreneurs like Hearst on a pedestal above all others. In 1965, when Hearst was in her expansionist pomp, Thatcher was shadow junior minister of housing. In the 1950s, as we saw earlier, Thatcher was all for women achieving fulfilment through paid employment. But by the 1970s, after her conversion to monetarism, she seemed to have changed her mind, believing the essentially female to her skill of balancing the books was best employed by women at home. Interviewed in the 1980s by Jenny Murray, Thatcher spoke of her fears of Britain being turned into a crash society and suggested that mothers who wished to work find a family member who could look after the children for a bit. No acknowledgement of a woman's need or ambition to earn her own living at all, fumed Murray, even though she, Thatcher, had always had a job. And yet despite Thatcher, the proportion of married women in the total workforce almost doubled between 1951 and 1971, while over the same period the number of men working in Britain dropped from 88 to 81%. It's easy to see why, for late 1960s feminists like the young Harriet Harman, the funnelling of women into temping and secretarial work felt like part of the problem. Condemning women forever after taking direction from their boss and never having the opportunity to work their way up the ladder. Typing and answering the phone was the sort of undemanding woman's work her parents' generation had thought appropriate the sort of work that could be fitted in around children and family life without too much effort. Harmon's parents pitied rather than admired career women. By contrast, she and her friends were in rebellion against the lives our mothers ended up leading. My life was certainly not going to be dominated by the wifely duties of cooking and looking after a husband. Part 2 In his account of the satire boom, that was satire that was, Humphrey Carpenter comments on Martin's ultra-professional polish in the first show, transmitted on the 24th of November 1962, noting that other performers frequently fluff words and look at the wrong cameras. 
By this time, television was firmly established at the centre of British cultural life. As Joan Bakewell observes, it wasn't something people did if there was nothing better to do. It was seen as the thing to do. Yet other women were suspicious of it. The novelist Doris Lessing felt it disrupted family life, especially in working-class communities, killing conversation and replacing it with blank passivity. Soon the big kitchen table had been pushed along the wall, chairs were installed in a semicircle and on their chair arms the swivelling supper trays. It was the end of an exuberant verbal culture. But television undoubtedly gave women new opportunities and new visibility, both as presenters and behind the scenes as producers and writers. It also brought ordinary women's stories to a mass audience. The playwright Nell Dunn's adaptation of her 1963 novel about backstreet abortion, Up the Junction, was one of a number of breakthrough dramas that included Ken Loach's film Kathy Come Home. Surprisingly, given the bold, honest way she wrote about working-class lives, Dunn herself was upper-class, the daughter of Sir Philip Dunn, a gentleman farmer. But she had rejected her privileged background and moved across the river from Chelsea to Battersea to work in a sweet factory. Mary Whitehouse, self-appointed guardian of the nation's morals as the founder of the deeply conservative National Viewers and Listeners Association, reserved special scorn for the work of Dunn and her ilk. We are told that the dramatists are portraying real life, she complained to an audience in Birmingham. But why concentrate on the kitchen sink when there are so many pleasant sitting rooms? Joan Bakewell anchored the pioneering discussion programme Late Night Lineup on BBC Two, launched in 1964. One of the first presenters to be shown on TV in colour, she laboured under the dismissive nickname The Thinking Man's Crumpet, bestowed on her by the comedian Frank Muir. Bakewell's television career began in the mid-1950s as a studio manager at the BBC. She was bad at it, she says, and made to do the training course twice. Her then-husband Michael was a drama producer. This was her ambition too, but husbands and wives were not allowed to work in the same department as it was considered bad for morale. Once she asked Derek R. Moore, the BBC's head of news, why there were no female newsreaders. He replied that one, their voices were too shrill, two, their clothes would distract viewers, and three, if there was a serious catastrophe, they wouldn't be able to keep their emotions hidden. Should women read the news? Could they? Mary Marquis was already the main newsreader for BBC Scotland in 1975 when Angela Rippon became the first woman permanently employed to read the national TV news. Rippon has said that when she started in broadcasting, there was no sexism because nobody had thought of it then. You didn't have token women. If you could do the job, that was it. Bakewell remembers it differently. She says that sexual harassment especially was a matter of routine in the TV industry in the 1960s. I took it for granted. A quick squeeze, a salacious leer. Of course, sexism comes in different shapes and sizes, When I first moved into TV, I was shocked by how often I heard unflattering stories about my childhood journalistic heroine Kate Aidy, like the famous one that Aidy had allegedly been filmed scrabbling in the sand for her lost pearl earrings while reporting on Operation Desert Storm. Aidy later called this out as a ridiculous fiction. Behind the scenes, the BBC was by no means exclusively male. In 1965, the veteran news producer Grace Wyndham Goldie retired after a long and illustrious career. Her protégé, future director-general of the BBC, Alastair Milne, would remember her as a small, bird-like woman with a striking, finely chiselled face. For David Attenborough, it was her personality that left the strongest impression. She was a ferocious battle-axe. 
A few years earlier, Goldie had watched the filming of the pilot of TW3 and been unimpressed. The satirical broadcaster and director Ned Sherin observed that she was not without humour, but only in the sense that the equator is not without ice if you ship in a refrigerator. As a former journalist on the BBC's magazine The Listener, Goldie had been one of the first people to realise how huge and important television, this miracle, this phenomenon, was going to be. It had, she wrote, a vividness which we cannot get from sightless broadcasting and a combination of reality and intimacy which we cannot get from the films. She joined the BBC proper in 1944 and was requisitioned by its fledgling television wing four years later, by which time she was already in her 40s. She would revolutionise current affairs broadcasting, turning Panorama into what she called the voice of authority and launching the magazine show Tonight, which ran five times a week from 1957 to 1965. Fiercely loyal both to the BBC and to the Rethian idea that broadcasting served an important civic function, she spent her last two years there as head of talks and current affairs, though her departure was marred by a dispute over her pension. Talking to the writer Charlotte Higgins for her history of the BBC, This New Noise, Melvin Bragg remembered her holding court, perching on a bar stool while toughies like Milne and Attenborough waited their turn to talk to her. Higgins concludes that she was an object of fascination as a powerful woman, an exotic creature within the BBC. If Goldie was sometimes brusque and unpleasant, then that was because she had to be. Higgins notes the way colleagues describe her in terms subtly different from those employed to assess her male peers. On the drama production side, women were in seriously short supply. Verity Lambert began her TV career in the PR department at Granada, one of the companies that made up ITV, the commercial network which had launched in 1955. She had grown up in Hendon in North London during the Second World War, but at the age of 11 was sent to the boarding school Rodine, where she found it hard to fit in. Lambert left school at 16 after the headmistress told her she wasn't university material and took herself off to the Sorbonne to study French. On returning to London, she wandered into the Granada job by accident after someone misread Rodine as Rada on her CV. A stint in New York working in stage management followed, then back in England a job on the popular ITV show Armchair Theatre, where she won plaudits for the way she handled a crisis, the actor Gareth Jones dying in the middle of a live broadcast. Lambert had to keep the show going, micromanaging the camera operators from the control room, while the director and the other actors rapidly reworked the plot and dialogue. The episode sparked a broader ambition to direct, but back in England she found she couldn't make any headway because I was a woman. One day in 1963 she was phoned by Sidney Newman, who had been the producer of Armchair Theatre and was now working in the BBC's drama department. Did she know anything about children? Absolutely nothing, she replied. Evidently it didn't matter. Lambert got the job producing a curious science fiction confection about a man who could travel through time. It was called Doctor Who. Doctor Who was supposed to run for a year, but the initial response to it was disappointing. The BBC was about to junk the programme when suddenly the Daleks were introduced, at which point viewing figures soared. As a woman, I did have to work twice as hard, Lambert remembered. You really had to be good. When I went to the BBC, I was the only woman producer and considerably younger than most of the other producers in the department. Meeting me was a shock to a lot of people. I would be introduced to someone and I could see horror flit across his face before he rearranged it into a sort of a smile. People were amazed and I think that they thought that I was sleeping with the head of the department. I'm sure they thought that and people did ask me. 
Sadly, Lambert was neither the first nor the last woman in the media to be the object of such a misapprehension. And despite winning a BAFTA award for an adaptation of some Somerset Maugham short stories, she was let go by the BBC, a blow she later rationalised as the best thing that could have happened as it made her independent and self-reliant. She went to London weekend television for a bit, then returned to the BBC to make a series of plays about the suffragettes. In the 1970s and 1980s, she ran both the independent Euston Films and EMI's film division before founding her own company, Cinema Verity, which employed mostly women, not out of any feminist compulsion, but because when women came along, they seemed to be better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bloody Brilliant Women with me, Cathy Newman. Bloody Brilliant Women, the pioneers, revolutionaries and geniuses your history teacher forgot to mention is available now in paperback from all good bookstores and as an audiobook and ebook from Apple Books, published by William Collins. Join me again in our next episode as we delve further into the pioneering women of the 20th century and meet more bloody brilliant women. <laughs>